the mapped out the plans for the Mexico event and they went, well, that's fantastic. And I said, there is just one catch. We don't intend to let anybody know where it is. It was the first time I'd ever actually met Chris Ward. Wardo walks in with, I think it was the cigarette in one end and a bottle of whiskey in the other, just necking it straight from the bottle. to the podcast. Your host, Paul Evans here. We've got a cool show lined up for you today. We're going to be chatting with an old, old pal of mine, Andy Higgins. He used to run the international events program for Ripco, and he was one of the people behind putting the event together in Mexico back in 2006, an event many people will believe to be the finest world tour event ever. Amazing right-hander there somewhere in Mexico. We're going to talk to Andy about organising that event, the lead-in, a little bit about the event itself and the legacy. We obviously haven't got any pro surf tour to speak of at the moment. We're going to look back fondly at one of the real kind of notable chapters in surfing history. Of course, if you want to get in touch with the show, drop us a line. You send us a tweet at Wavelength Mag or send us an email, editor at wavelengthmag.com. You can DM us on Instagram or Facebook, Wavelength Surf Mag. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review if you feel so inclined. Hope you enjoy the show. Former Ripco International Events Director Andy Higgins. Andy, welcome to the podcast. I'm stoked to have you along to chat about what many people believe is the greatest surf event ever. They believe that at that at that point in time and a lot of people still think that today it's july 2006 it's the rip curl search in mexico you were one of the people that helped organize that before we get into that event itself and i'm just thinking i'm imagining did you all walk into the rip curl office one day in torquay and go right bells is shit we need a proper wave to do events at is that how it went down paul thank you very much for that <laughs> wonderful introduction you're all wearing you're wearing your Ripco shoes, your Ripco jeans, your Ripco sunnies, all your Ripco gear. You all walked in and went, bells is shit. Well, actually, no, it didn't really unfold like that. Okay. Um, yeah, the truth, the truth of the matter was at that time, Ripco had a couple of licenses around the world, and one of them was for a six-star QS in Hossegore. Yeah, I did the webcast for it. Yeah. Well, there was talk of trans... Um, transforming that event into a CT. Um, and however, at that point in time, the license for some reason went to Quicksilver and, uh, and they put on the Quicksilver Pro and we lost our, we lost our place here in Europe. And uh, when questioned, you know, what, what, menu, what move should we do from here in terms of the brand and stuff, Francois Payo said, you know, we believe so strongly in the search, let's do an event. And uh, that's mobile every year. And uh, it was a good idea. Great idea. And great. It was a great idea, actually. It was just like easier said than done, um, relocating, you know, w WCT event every year. But, um, and, no, we, you know, Bells is a good wave. Is it? And, uh, yeah, well, yeah, I spent a lot of time surfing Bells. Love Bells. Is it good? 
it's pretty good way. You know, you know something isn't that good when you're constantly being told how good it is. Like no one ever goes, oh no, Chokes is a really, no, no, Pipes is a really good one to win. But everyone's like always properly trying to convince you that Vals is that like, really important, which tends to make you kind of think, oh, it must be shit. Why are they, why are they trying to sell it to me? Well, Bells is never going to go away anyway. It's just part of Rip Curls. No, fair enough. I'm only... Heritage. I'm just being... And it's not a bad wave on its day. No, you're you right. You know, six, eight feet, low tide, the bowl. It's pretty epic. Yeah, no, I'm with you now. I'm just being silly. So the first such event was at Reunion Island. You were there. I was there. A fun time was had by all. However, it wasn't like an earth-shattering sort of world-class wave. It's a fun wave, but it didn't blow anyone's mind. Plus, there had been events going on there back since the 80s or whatever, ASP have been going there. When did Mexico first come into the Higo inbox? It's very much linked to our uh, Rip Curl office um, in Carlsbad at the time. And um, what they had said was, you know, there's a Mexican guy who uh, lives in California who has very good connections down the deep south of Mexico. And if you wanted to put an event on, he he's worth talking to. His name is, is Robert... Chewy Madrigal. So we eventually went for lunch with him one day when I was in California and he said that he would like to take me on a tour of some of his different surf spots around Mexico and um, see if there was anything there of interest for us in terms of putting on an event. So we went to Porto Escondido and met up with a bunch of locals, including Oscar Moncada. Did you get barreled? And uh, did I get barreled? Uh, yeah, I got a few barrels. I mean, Porto's pretty um, intimidating wave and I remember getting slammed. So most amazing thing about Porto is that even at like two or three feet, you can get slammed. Like, you know, it could be a 10 foot somewhere else. That's like the type of beating you'd get. But um, yeah, so we surfed there a bunch. We spoke to the locals and we asked, you know, what's up the coast and down the coast and um, eventually went on tour and uh, led us all the way to La Jolla. Okay, well, we're going to come on to La Jolla and the, the reason for taking that name. But basically, you went to a place that now is well-known and, and out there called Barra de la Cruz, the name of the village, and it's been out for a number of years. But it's La Jolla, Paul. Okay, okay. I love the way you're still towing the company line. Um, you like that? Ellis, you rocked up in the little village. There's just a mental right point what what did you think did you go fuck me we found the best venue ever or did you think yeah this could be all right depends you know what was your what was your vibe on the on the location when you went there the location as a surf spot was phenomenal the, the first day i stepped foot on the beach it was three foot perfect with 10 guys out and it was reeling down the down the sand bank for i don't know something like three or four hundred meters so you know, what I wanted to do was test the wave, make sure that it was going to be good enough for the pros. So what I did is spent about seven days surfing day and night, high tide and low tide on all the different winds, just to understand whether that location was going to be any good for the pros. <clears throat> and after seven long, hard days, Paul, I realised that it was. Um, <laughs> it's a, as Neil Ridgway would say, you know, it's all about the wave and... and La Jolla is a uh, double, double A wave. Um, and at that time, were you thinking this is like, sounds kind of like the best job ever. I know that obviously there was other more boring stuff involved, but when you were surfing La Jolla or Barra de la Cruz on your own before it was really known to the world for seven days, day and night, were you thinking this is all right, isn't it? This gig? Yeah, it was for sure. 
Now, the, the, the work I was doing it took up a lot of my time and there was an enormous amount of travel involved, but there was moments like that when um, it really made it all you know, worthwhile. But yeah, that was, that was the best part, the research trips when you travel to exotic locations in search of waves. But that was pretty much, it was, in terms of wave quality, there was a no-brainer. And I think our window was in end of June. Mm, July, and, yeah. Yeah, start of July. And, and it was just it, the timing um, for swells and, um, you know, off the trade winds and stuff like that was perfect. So, we, yeah, we did a little bit of research um, using a guy called Ben Madsen. And he, he delivered a report that said, basically, if you're going to go to Mexico, that's, your, that's the best time of the year, one of the best times. Okay. So, so obviously always a bit of a risk that you're going to miss the swell or, or you know, it's going to be... Um, poor conditions but that you know we landed it on that that trip for sure so Higo said it was a good wave dan matson said it was going to be a good wave if you get a big south swell do you know what kelly Slater said he said after a heat this place is better than the gold coast and better than jeffries yeah uh, kelly liked it too so it's a good call we're going to come on to the event itself in a sec but we're still in the sort of prelimin preliminary to use that means foreplay in french if anyone's doesn't know, but we're still in the kind of leading up proceedings. You had to go in, and obviously there's no real infrastructure there. You're in the middle of nowhere, just mosquitoes and fucking water with sort of amoebic bacteria in, and you know, not not a lot around. Tons of infrastructure. You're putting on a major international event. Tell us a little bit about palms being greased. Did you have to do any sort of dodgy deals with authorities? I mean, what what was it like, kind of putting something like that together? Certainly there is a way of doing business in Mexico <laughs> that is completely foreign to the way we would do business maybe in, in, in Europe or Australia or, or America. And, um, but we had a Mexican, this guy I was mentioned before, Chuy Madrigal, and he <clears throat> had spent a lot of time in Mexico and he's got Mexican origins. But, um, and he'd done a lot of business there, so he, he knew how we needed to tackle this. But, you know, the first and the thing that we first uh, were kind of most concerned about was really getting the support of the local people. And there, there weren't really that many local surfers. So we, we, you know, we did talk to them, but we also did talk to the local community. And we put it to, um, we kind of did a presentation in this, um, in the little village town. And, um, yeah, and there was a decision thrown out and it was, a, yeah, unanimously voted to, to bring the event. But, yeah, it's kind of, you know, <clears throat> we're trying to keep things as clean as possible. However, on some occasions, you know, people do, some politicians require, you know, it's just the way they do business. And, however, that sounds like seedy, but, but yeah, that's just unfortunately how some things operate. I mean, we did an event in Indonesia as well and that was... It was quite extreme in terms of the the way you you need to pay people, but where, for us we see that as almost like bribes. And over there, some of it's just like, well, they're payments from the work that I'm doing. You're down there in Mexico. You're putting this together. I've actually got an article up on waylengthmag.com about the decision to withhold the name and stuff like that. It's the local communal, was like the residents' association, and essentially the decision was made not to use the name Barra de la Cruz. And that, if I've understood it right, was partly to do with the fact that the residents felt that the infrastructure wasn't really there to attract a shitload of people. And also that was kind of part of the search ethos as well was 
not to name the location. So a decision is made not to use the name of the event, the name of the town. Everyone knows it's in Mexico. How hard is it for someone like you to do deals to get money, sponsorship, things like that, if you can't actually say where the event is? That sounds a bit weird. For people who don't know about surfing, that, that would sound like quite a strange concept. Yeah, it was. But at the end, we didn't really need to do any deals because it was, you know, in terms of the infrastructure, we just needed the absolute basics there. And, um, but it was interesting, just like <clears throat> that whole, I spent, I did spend that seven days there. In fact, I spent like 10 days in that area and, um, and I got on a plane back to Australia and I, and I had a, a meeting scheduled with Neil Ridgway and I was thinking, you know, in terms of the, the wave quality, it's epic. So, so the surfer's going to love it. However, as a surfer, it kind of contradicts what, what we love the most and that's surfing good waves with nobody out. So it was like, you know, how can we do this without really kind of blowing out of the water? And we spoke to the locals about that and we, and we said, you know, however, they had said, yes, it's kind of cool that you can come. And we had stimulated the, the conditions and terms under which we would come. And, um, and, you know, they kind of wanted us to talk about it. And we said, we don't want to talk about the location because we'd be concerned there'd be too many people here. And they said, this is a gated area. So for people to get here and then get to the beach is they have to go through us anyway. So they were like, we're going to manage the, you know, the crowds that, that were to come, um, we, we were understanding would come. And, um, and they said, don't particularly worry about it. However, as a surfer, I thought, <clears throat> you know, it would be, um, it would be a shame to kind of, you know, just give everybody a roadmap to this location. If it encouraged people to, to you know, travel up and down Mexico and, and search for waves because there's thousands of great spots and there's, you know, tens of, tens of thousands of kilometres of coastline there, if it encouraged them to do that, then, then great. But, um, yeah, so I was on a plane and I was thinking, you know, I don't want to give it up. And I came up with that idea um, and I walked into the office and met with my boss, Neil, and said, um, I've got this, you know, I think we've found the location. I think there's some real good positives. There's a, there's a town, it's like 45 minutes away, 40 minutes away, and we could, there's infrastructure there. On the beach, there's absolutely nothing. But I, I, I said, I think the, the location's so good. We either don't do it there or we conceal the location. And, and he thought I was kind of crazy. And I said to him, yeah, I, when, when that idea came to me on the plane, I thought it was a bit outrageous, but I, I thought about it some more and I thought, you know, it's possibly could work. And in terms of a marketing concept, that's, that could be pretty strong as well. So Neil Ridgway, 24 hours later, he says to me, I, I like it. I like this idea, but he's like, I don't know how you're going to sell that in to the ASP um, or the surfers and how you're going to manage that. And we had an ASP meeting coming up and I said, well, I'll give it a try. And I remember we did go into the meeting and, you know, all the, at that time that was ASP and Brody Carr was the CEO, Rabbit Bartholomew, I think was the president. Yeah. And, um, you know, the representatives from the different brands from Quicksilver and Billabong and Rip Curl and so forth sat around a table and they, everybody had votes and they, you know, presented their plans for future years and so forth like that. So, and there it was, I said, here, here's the presentation. I showed them all the, you know, the, the mapped out the plans for the Mexico event and they went, well, that's fantastic. And I said, there is just one catch. We don't intend 
to let anybody know where it is, um, particularly the media, and we'll let the surfers know it kind of at the last minute, you know, like if we could maybe about you know, six weeks in advance, however we we're going to hold their, their accommodation reservations and then just um, so they didn't need to worry about that. So, um, yeah, it was, it was good. It built, it, it built a, great deed, a great deed of um, excitement in, in the lead-up, which was good. People wanted to know where it was. Which of the surfers, if any, did you think he can't keep a secret? He's going to spill the beans for sure. Was there anyone you had your suspicions over? The surfers talking amongst themselves and amongst their friends and all that sort of stuff, that, I suppose that was fine. There was one time, though, like just immediately after the event, there was a, a Brazilian magazine and the guy did a, did a map to the location and he wrote it in his article. It was supposed to be a secret, but he, he believed that his viewers had the right... Uh, his, his readers had the right to know all the information and it was unethical un of Rip Curl to hold the details or something. And, and it was, I remember I rang the guy and just, dude, like, did you really need to do that? You know, really, give, let just people dream a little and sense of adventure and get out there and, and go travel. You didn't need to talk about it. All right, that'll do it for part one. More cool stuff with Higo coming up in part two of the show. In the meantime, I'd just like to take this opportunity to remind you about some of the epic subs offers we've got going on Wavelength at the moment. You go on wavelengthmag.com forward slash subscriptions. Check out some of the offers going down there. We've got a real cool one at the moment with Tom's and Altanone. They've made a sandal. You get a free pair of sandals along with your two premium print editions of the magazine. Speaking of which... Brand new issue, just about to drop. It's a subscriber-only edition. So we're going fully reader-supported, and we do thank you out there in the Wavelength community for your continued support for independent publishing. It's my summer issue that's out now. It's based around mythology, and Wavelength editor Luke Gartside has been collecting a really cool bunch of stories from some different characters. And he's got some really good stuff from over there in Ireland. And we're about to hear a little bit of a snippet of a conversation he had with Jack Johns, talking about Dusty the Dolphin, probably one of uh, the surf world's foremost cetaceans. Let's have a listen to what Jack and Luke had to say. Uh, yeah, man, Dusty was, um, Dusty's still there, but Dusty's like a crazy fucking dolphin. That, um, basically, the rumour is it when Dusty Springfield's ashes got... Um, scattered off the cliffs of Noah, it basically appeared, and this was like 20 years ago, there's a little bay called Whitsand Bay, which is right next to the world, and every summer there's Dusty, Dusty would come and live in there, and basically formed a relationship with like a German woman, and they had this weird love affair, she basically, this woman would sort of swim out with a mask and snorkel and a flipper, basically hug, Dolph, hug, hug Dusty all summer, um, and, and then Dusty ended up like getting too frisky with her and ramming her or something, and like breaking her ribs and then she got Dusty kind of got outcasted so Dusty kind of like spent a good five years basically surfing all the waves of us but like at first it was just amazing it was like it, it would catch the wave with you and like jump out the face mm -hmm. like I remember clearly it jumping over me like at his way post box but like after a while it just got fucking annoying like she'd literally ruin every wave like She'd be on every wave of the set. So yeah. She'd like catch the one wave and then jump over you and then like go back out and catch the next one. If you look up any of Mickey's old videos, she's like in the face of every single wave. Mickey, Mickey always put her in her videos. 
yeah, she spent a lot of time with us. So you there's, so you go between post box and a bumbleoid, which is the two main ways you surf there. Um, and like you jump in a bumbleoid, and then like five minutes later, she she'd show up, and she'd be there, and she'd spend a whole session with you. And you get out and you go and surf post, uh, posties on a drop, pass out there, and then she just end up end up being there for the whole surf. And like you know, it would be like it got to a point where you'd be like, fuck, let's quickly try and get as many ways you can before Dutty shows up. Like she, she'd like she just she'd come up and sit with you and hang up and like just like kind of nudge you and like poke you on the board and then like as you're taking from the wake she ran you. No she, way. It, was, it was mental, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, that's dusty man. She's like covered in scars and yeah, she just she just catches waves and she's fucking gnarly. She she like she'll ram you if she if she likes you. <laughs> Okay, here we go. We're going to get onto the event itself in a sec and talk about just uh, this amazing sort of swell of swells, which hit the bank of banks at La Jolla. But before we get to that, you, you touched on it there. Let's set the scene at the time. It's 2006. And in many ways, it's sort of the kind of golden, the, it was La Belle Epoque on the ASP World Tour. Um, so events were big, massive global stars like Slater and Andy and these sort of people. But at the same time, there was still sort of quite a lot of access to events and surfers and if you think now it's all kind of centrally run but at the time it was each individual company or event ran its own broadcast so they picked their own commentators and they basically kind of did what they wanted put it out on their own on their own websites and you know even just to go to an event this was before there were like 12 different colored wristbands for different areas that you can go to and then it was just like one wristband essentially you go in and you're in everyone kind of eats at the same canteen it was sort of quite a cool time and there was plenty of money washing around and plenty of sort of stars and big stuff but it also was still kind of a little bit small time in a in a strange kind of a way so it was a cool time to be going to events and around the world and just to refresh people's memories slater was the reigning world champ um he was going for number number seven he he'd won six then um andy irons would of course go on to win this event which in many ways part of the sort of a mystique as well about this event is that was kind of Andy, pretty much the end of his kind of peak period. I mean, he won a few CTs after this, didn't he? he won Pipe that year, and he won Chile, another search event, and he won Chopa the year he died. But he was never really like a force competing for world titles, really, from, from this sort of time onwards. He'd, he'd done his work like that. So it was that kind of era, and there's still a few old-school kind of guys around on tour. Slater still very much at the peak of his powers and still with a few world titles in front of him. Um, but just a cool time to be on tour. Is that? Do you look back at that era sort of, sort of fondly as kind of a good time in 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 the then ASP World Tour? How do you reflect on on what? I mean, was it was life a bit looser then, Andy? You're laughing. Well, I wasn't on the tour. I was just organising one yeah, of the events, or actually a couple of the events. Yeah, you were at a lot of events. You knew a lot of the dudes. I mean, was it was it a bit a little bit more fun involved then? A little bit more access to the stars. Yeah, I think if you're trying to make a comparison of between then and now, yeah, I mean, right now it's very professional, it's very slick, there's a lot of money involved, you know, big broad, TV broadcast, live broadcast budgets and so forth and lots of staff. Yeah, ours was, it was a skeleton staff, the skeleton infrastructure and, um, yeah, it was pretty raw. And, you know, that particular event, because we didn't really 
tell anybody where it was. There were no spectators, which was good. And the last thing actually we wanted at that event, which was already quite challenging itself in terms of getting the infrastructure set up, especially the live webcast, um, we didn't really want to have the responsibility or the risks involved with spectators. So there were very few people, no one, no one was there. It was kind of good for that, which meant it was just surfers there. Just so like we a didn't really, event, really. Experience. It was just like a, it was like a, a board club event, really, just set up. I mean, obviously a bit bigger, but um, but it was very cool. And yeah, the access was good. And you know, the the, the interesting thing about the search event is the pro surfers would look at that event like a, a holiday event and they would gen quite frequently bring their girlfriends or their fa their wives and their kids and and um, make a real uh, trip out of it because also apart from the surfing the new wave, there was also a new location to discover, um, which was always fun. There was always a really, really good vibe. I suppose because Andy was there and, and had such a big, uh, strong presence among the surfers. Certainly um, the day everybody would fly in and we would have our opening party, um, you know, we'd have cocktails and there would be a couple of speeches, you know, welcoming uh, all the ASP staff and officials and the pro surfers and the media to the location is, you know, those, those introductory, you know, um, little celebrations sometimes went all night. Mm, I'm sure they did. Um, so let's talk about waves. You know the bank's good. You know the break is sick. You're in prime season, but still, you know there can be, you know, pipe can be flat in December, can't it? You're there. I imagine a little bit before, and a mental swell lines up. I mean, locals at the time have said it's like the best they've ever seen it. The swell of swells comes in. A place just is just mental. Were you standing there on the beach when sort of round one, heat one, went in the water and just thought, "Fuck me, I'm a genius. Look at this, it's pumping." Yeah. What were your thoughts on on the day? No, any any event manager knows you can't take you know credit for for a good swell arriving. After the event, really, it was almost after the final. Andy beats Taylor in the final, and then the surf just went. It almost went flat, like within half an hour after it, and it stayed flat for like three weeks. You know, so uh, it was. It's all luck, actually. I can tell you, the day that we turn up and actually we're fin it's the day before the trials uh, Fanning turns up, walks down the beach and he's just like Here you go, going you off his head. Here you go. Can't look sick. Can't. Yeah, man. There you go. Uh, he's lost his boards, lost in transit, lost his bag, no clothes. And he just says, you got a boardy. And I go, yeah, luckily I had a, like a brand new DHD. And, and he goes, can I borrow your boardies? So I took off my boardies and he gave me his pants and he took they're my really board baggy. and I... They're really baggy, <laughs> really below the knee, like below, six inches below <laughs> the knee, reptile, really baggy boardies. Yeah, they were. And, uh, and I saw him like about four hours later. And, and he basically, he paddled out and there was no, nobody had arrived at that point. He was one of the first guys. And he was just like, this is not like Snapper, this is like Kira. And it was like Kira. And he got some of the most amazing barrels on my board. My board has never been barreled like that before or after. Just for the unadjusted, just qualify the difference between Snapper and Kira for people that aren't, you know, that into the Gold Coast. 
Yeah, well, it's just it's just heavier. Kira's just a, a, a you know bigger barrel and a with heavier sections and heavier lip and more cylindrical, and that's really what this wave turned out to be like okay. on that particular swell. So Fanning's getting coned on your board, and your board is people are rocking up. The swell's mental. Tell me any sort of favourite memories or anecdotes or, you know, any sort of little bits of looseness that went down. I mean, you're thinking there's some characters on tour then with Oki and obviously Andy and like Chris Ward and Fanning and Nathan Hedge and, you know, some pretty big characters kicking about at the time. They weren't just drinking sort of mineral water, you know, of an evening. So what, what sort of stuff went down? Was it, you know, you mentioned it was kind of like almost a little surf camp vibe. Tell us about the vibes on the ground while the event was, was going on. There wasn't this real sense that, that you were going into a heat uh, competing. It, it was like, not like these man-on-man um, -man heats where you've got to go kick somebody's ass. It was more like just let's paddle out. We're going to sit out there for 25 minutes and get some epic waves. And the waves were so perfect at probably, what, two, two metres, like six, six feet? For most part, four to six feet, maybe a little bit bigger sometimes on some occasions. And it was like the surfers, you know, it was really challenging for them. So it was more like the surfer against the wave as it as it was, as opposed to, you know, surfers against surfers. But um I can remember Taj, he got like a nine seven on something that he got what was something like a twenty second barrel. And he came in and they read out his score. That was a Taj nine seven and Taj is like, fuck it. That's a, that was a 10. That was a 10. I don't care what anyone tells me. That was a 10. And he, and he, the rest of the day, he was just telling him, but did you see my 10? Um, and that's fair enough because I don't know why, but he, there was nothing more he could have done. He rode a barrel perfectly from start to finish. Um, Poncho Sullivan was doing some huge hacks. Taylor Knox was um, doing huge calves, long barrels, extremely stylish. And any time there was a break in the competition, uh, he was out. It was before the event. Any time during it, there was a break and after, until dark. It was quite phenomenal to see how fit he was. But it, it was the first time I'd ever uh, actually met Chris Ward. Uh-oh. And... I met him one night. There was a function in the township <laughs> and at a bar that was quite well known for its big parties. And I was sitting up the back in a table and we we're having some food and some drinks with a bunch of crew. And, and Wardo walks in with, I think it was the cigarette in one end and a bottle of whiskey in the other, just necking it straight from the bottle. <laughs> And he was just going around, just kicking tables over and things over. It was just really out of control. And then I, I was just like, I've, I, don't, I just had too much on my plate to try and go, I can't deal with this. Like someone's going to have to take care of this. Otherwise, we're going to be, we're going to be hearing about this in the morning or whatever. But, but um, yeah, he, he turns out to be a really nice guy. He just like sometimes drinks a little too much. But he was very excited to be there. Um, as were a lot of the crew, so it was very cool. But um, yeah, what else? Did you get much? Can I tell you? Did you talk to the goat much? Did you get any insights from the goat? Did he tell you you're doing it wrong, doing it right? Did you get any feedback from Kelly? Oh no, nah, Kelly. Kelly's never really given me much over the years. So 
but I know that he was pretty stoked to have to have gone there and and to have surfed in that event and to ha- have had those waves. I think that's pretty much what what he was interested in. I think it's one that he would have liked to have, given the waves were so good and he's kind of has gone down in folklore. Uh, he would have been he would have liked to have won, but um, you know as it turns out it was it was Andy. But I think Andy every search event he just loved them so much that uh, that he probably was maybe more focused on the search event than any other event, like in his lead up. Certainly when he arrived, he was always very, um, always in a good mood. Bruce and Andy had a famous heat, didn't they? The quarter final, they had an amazing heat. One of their sort of, they didn't have loads of matchups on tour, but that was a bit of a classic if I remember rightly. Um, yeah. He obviously was on tour at the time and kind of phenomenal and like, right, point kind of ways as well. So some epic performances going down. The waves are amazing. You must be getting some pretty good feedback. You've touched upon the fact that, all right, you can't take credit for the swell being good, but it's making a bit of a splash in the surf world. What were some of the reactions from, I mean, every major surf kind of magazine and, and website around the world? The feedback was pretty, well, everyone was kind of calling it, this is the best event ever, like pretty much straight away, right? But yeah, it was really positive. It was super positive. And, you know, we, at Rip Curl, we were trying to revitalize the search concept we were somewhat trying to maybe see what we could innovate when it comes to, you know, events. The whole tour was pretty static. And um, as well, as as was surfing a little bit, um, and, and it was something new and something fresh. And then, you know, that event, you know, people at the end of that event were kind of going, okay, well, the search is over. You just do the event here every year. And it was like, well, if we had so much luck this time, maybe we could, you know, we should continue searching and see what else. And of which we did. And um, we generally found reasonably good waves everywhere else we went. But there was just, you know, finding the location and then getting the support of the locals and then being able to put all the infrastructure in place um, is pretty, you know, you're working, there's a lot of, factors there <laughs> and, and and you actually rely on luck very heavily and the search took in a lot of different locations in the year after went to Arica and chile but there's nothing quite like a sand point is there and if you even think about an amazing slab like i mean Arica is almost kind of too gnarly in some regards wasn't it but like even at pipe or chopa you, you get a guy in a heat will get two tens and the other guy can't get a two you know slabs and reefs can be like that right either make an amazing barrel or, or you get nothing, whereas, you know, a long-running right point, yeah, everyone's got a shot at really just doing a, a ton of surfing in their heat as well. So all of those sort of factors came together. I mean, the, the sort of running, grinding sand point is the sort of like the holy grail, I guess, for a surf event. You guys found it there. And yeah, the, I'm thinking the other such events with Chile, them over in Portugal, I think was the one after that, wasn't it? Super two boss, which, you know, was, wasn't a new discovery. Yeah. It was good, but still there was like one good afternoon, but it wasn't, you know, it didn't blow anyone's mind. Puerto Rico, decent again, but nothing, you know, particularly get excited about San Francisco. It's never really quite captured that magic of that. A, that's kind of unknown factor and B, just the quality of the ways that you guys got in 2006. We had a lot of luck, ridiculous amount of luck terms of getting that particular swell and that the bank the the bank had been had just become lined up from the previous swell and just sat there and then when i when we were building the infrastructure 
early couple of days it was pretty flat. It was almost unsurfable. And then, um, yeah, the day of the, the day before the trials, it started to pick up and the day of the trials, it, it went to six feet and perfect. And it was just amazing. And I think it had like 16 or 20, I can't remember, 16 or 24 Mexican surfers compared in the trials in, in, in what probably that, that day would have been, you know, we've gone down in history alone as one of the greatest days of competitive surfing. And yet it was just the trialists in the, the, you know, the Mexican trials trying to get a wild card into the main event. Um, since then, I mentioned my article, the Suffering Wavelength for mag.com earlier, but I've, I've written a little piece and it discusses kind of what's happened since at Barra de la Cruz. Um, well, long story short, the, the word did get out, obviously, and, you know, locals developed a little bit with that area. You mentioned there was a gate and they charged a little entry fee that ended up building a little, little restaurant, a little kind of shelter there, cabana on the beach with some, with some toilets and some facilities. Um, and then, Andy, um, this is according to an article on Surfer that I, I found by Kimball Taylor. Basically, the river that, that made the wave kind of got close to this, this shelter, this cabana. So they moved the river to protect the cabana. So they moved the river, and then, of course, what happened then? Moving the river stopped feeding the sand to the wave. Um, the wave's kind of gone away. Um, there was a little bit of a local ship fight with people trying to basically steal land up the point when the wave wasn't there, the surface kind of stopped coming and people was trying to kind of illegally claim this land. A lot of the focus shifted to Salinas Cruz, which is kind of the right point that you see, you know, in, in sort of edits these days or further away. A little bit of a slight or sad tinge to that story in Barra de la Cruz. I just wonder, uh, it's quite a long question here, I'll, I'll get to the question. How much do you personally feel responsible for the downfall of Barra de la Cruz? I mean, we can't, we can't lay it at your downfall, but let's say the three, downfall. Three, three or 4% or sort of 15 to 20%. I mean, how much was kind of you, would you say, given you spent a week there surfing your brains out, went straight back to Ritkal, obviously, went, let's do the event here. How much you blow this got, place out of the water? Do you ever lie, lie awake at night, nude, sweating? No, I, I used to. I used to, more so in the lead up. But no, you know, what we would always try and do, Paul, to avoid having a situation where, you know, you would, you would have this playing on your conscience, and, conscience and, and you would leave there with regrets, is you would explain very clearly and openly um, and in a transparent fashion with the locals so they know what was to expect. And here, you know, like, hey, we didn't really blow it out of the water in terms of not disclosing the location. And, you know, they had these methods, these systems in place to protect their local society. But, um, you know, there is, with these events, you know, it was a fantastic event. Uh, for the surfers and for the ASP and for Rib Curl. And, you know, there was many positives for the, for the local community. That's for sure. But there was also probably some negatives. And like you said, you know, there's maybe, you know, an influx of people came into the area and there wasn't a great deal of infrastructure there and maybe they've had trouble dealing with it. But, you know, what was very clear when we had meetings with them was I was concerned about things that could happen in the future in their village and they were saying to me, um, this is our village, um, you don't need to worry about that. So, and they were very clear with that, just like, you know, 
and they were and they had a structure set up in terms of we didn't pay anybody in the government to, to give us approval to use the beach we put the the idea to them explained it to them and then said how you know what do you guys think um and they they wanted to do that um it was an opportunity they didn't they didn't want to let go so less than 10 uh, but it's the same you're saying less than 10 percent here goes fault but you know think about this reunion island we went to reunion island yeah and this we did the same thing we went to reunion island in 2005 and we had the the, the event at St. Lou. Now, the thing with St. Lou is it was heavily protected break. And in fact, the locals had even been you know, notoriously violent on some occasions. And what we did is we, we, we found the guy who was the heaviest there and we said, we would like to talk to you and we would like to talk to any other locals and we'd like to present the concept and see what you think. And, and because it's the, the, the quality of the wave is there, now whether, whether you want us here or not, that's another thing. And, and we can't go any further unless you do. And we had a, had a, a dinner or a function, not even a function, it was a sitting around a table and there was about 20 local guys came and we presented the whole event concept to them and told them what that would mean and the potential that maybe more people would be here in the future and asked them to have a vote and they voted for it. So it's the same, and then we went, well, this seems to be the model that we need so that they have buy-in and um, we would share the responsibility somewhat. So, yeah, we, we definitely, uh, it does weigh very heavily on me, Paul, mm. and I'm still losing sleep some 15 years later. Just as, a, as an aside, was there, is there a head local guy called Tarzan? Is that the guy that does stand-up paddling in his Speedos? Tarzan, that's him. That's it? right, yes. Cool. We'll see if we can get him on the get him on the podcast. Um, here goes. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for chatting to you. I've obviously, I'm, you know, I've been joking. Obviously, um, no one thinks it's, it's your fault at all. Um, and also, you know, you guys helped pay for a sort of medical facility there that that the local communal wanted. So, a good time. It was very very generous of uh, Ripcool at that time to make quite a substantial donation to the local community to help. Good fund a um a medical hospital. Well, the event will go down in history as one of, if not the greatest ever tour events. You had a significant role to play in that, so you know, big up to you. And thanks a lot for joining us on the show, Higa. Maybe we'll get you back on another time. You can tell us about Chile or San <laughs> or Portugal. If anybody cares, I'd love to do it, Paul. There you go, mate. It's been fun. I'm batting down the hatches because, well, I guess the storm's blowing up from you. You're down in Biarritz at the moment, a little bit down the right. coast, and it's it's going mental up here. Um, I'll talk to you soon, mate. Love you. Bye. Thanks, buddy. It's been a pleasure. Bye. Okay, that's going to wrap things up for this episode of the pod. Hope you enjoyed the show. We're going to be coming back with a brand new app of It's Not The Length. That's myself and it's man like Ben Mundy. That's coming at you in around about a week's time. Stay tuned for that one. Should be a cracker of a show. In the meantime, don't forget, subscribe to the pod if you haven't already. Send us a tweet at WavelengthMag. Drop us a line, editor at WavelengthMag.com. Stay safe. Be good. I'll talk to you soon.